Would you find in the Word of God with me the epistle of James, chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. This morning, it's now the second time that we're going to look at this very reassuring word from the Lord, uh, penned by the very brother of Jesus. And as we've been going through this letter week by week, you know now that the purpose of this section of James is to provide a word of encouragement, a word of encouragement to those Christians who are going through inevitable times of trial and temptation. One of the things we've learned as we've traveled through the book of James so far is that such experiences of affliction and testing and temptation are the normal course for all disciples of Jesus. That's the way it is until the Lord returns. There's nothing abnormal, there's nothing out of sorts with a life that is one always facing tribulation or hearing the persistent drumbeat of temptation. Our lives are not special. (laughs) They are not special at all. They are very much alike. The lives of all of God's people from the ages have shown this characteristic, always facing trial, always facing temptation. And James has told us very clearly that while the Lord does, in fact, test us, he does that to strengthen our faith, to make us stronger, more vibrant, and more dynamic as followers of Christ, our Father never tempts us to do evil. Rather, James has told us that the source of all temptation is our own hearts, our hearts that are polluted still with desires that always seek to be expressed in ways that are contrary to God's will. With all of that before us, James then begins to give a word of encouragement. He begins to unpack some wonderful truths as we get to verses 17 and 18. So far, he's told us, as we saw last Lord's Day, that we have a Father in heaven. And his name, as James names him here, his name is the Father of lights. In Jesus Christ our Lord, God is our Father. He is the maker of the stars, and we have from the maker of the stars an abundant supply of mercy and grace and love. Our Father loves us, our Father is with us, and our Father is in full control. And on top of that, James makes it very clear that he loves to rain down on his people good and perfect gifts. We have a good Father. He is nothing but good, and he can be nothing but good to his people. Now, with all of that in front of us, James still talks about the Father, and there's more to say, more we need to hear. And so let's once more pick up these verses, James 1, 17 and 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What good news that is. And may the Lord now bless his people and bless the proclamation of his holy word. Well, we know that our Father is good. James has made that emphatic. But there's a second truth about the character and the nature of God that we want to begin exploring this morning. James says that the Father of lights, our Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ, never, ever changes. And you can read it in verse 17. There is no variation 
or shadow due to change. And I'm here to tell you this morning that that is magnificent news. Here is a wonderful attribute of our Father, of our triune God. He is unchanging. And immediately when when I think of that, I hear a hymn in my mind. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. And this is what James means. Our Father, the Father of lights, is not only good, and He not only continually showers His children with blessings, but He does not change. Now you remember that James is asking us to look up into the sky. And as we gaze at the sky, as we see the night sky, as we look at creation, immediately we are aware of God's goodness and of His mercy and of His power. But James would suggest that when we look up into the stars or we look out at nature, we are also intuitively aware that God never changes. There is no variation with Him. There is no shadow due to change. If you're reading the NIV this morning, your translation reads this way, who does not change like shifting shadows. Or the New King King James Version. There is no variation or shadow of turning. Or you might have the Phillips translation. There is never the slightest variation or shadow of inconsistency. It's been said that the God who orders the stars and their changing, who controls all the changes of creation, does not himself change at all. Now what do you see When you look in the stars, what do you see on a starry night? You see things that are finite. You see things that have been made. And you see things that are always changing. Always changing. In space and in nature, there is constant variation, constant movement and shifting and oscillation. Think of the planets and the stars and the galaxies moving through space along with the asteroids and the comets. And from our earthly vantage point, the stars appear to twinkle. And we see the movement of the constellations. We see the moon in its cycle of waning and waxing. And we we trace the course of the sun across the sky from dawn and high noon to twilight and, and then to dusk. The entire natural world is one of perpetual, constant change. The seasons change. The weather changes, the oceans change, the rivers change, the life cycle of the animals and the plants and the insects all betray change. Everything we see around us is changing. Even the rocks, even the rocks suffer erosion. Even the mountains will periodically quake or explode with volcanic power. Everything is changing. And then you think of yourself. Look in the mirror. Compare your photographs from years gone by, and you too are changing. Our own bodies change, our hair, and don't look around. And our skin, and our bones, and our joints. Some changes, a few, may be for the better, but most are not. And we as human beings go through the cycle of birth and growth and then decline and death. It is a characteristic of all created things that they change. But our Father, 
Our Redeemer, our Provider, does not change even in the slightest way or degree. And my friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, we want to hold on to that truth because we've been called to serve Him in this present evil age. And there are trials and there are temptations and we need something to hold on to. And James, the brother of Jesus, is is giving you something to hold on to. The nature of God. And the word we would use is immutable. He is immutable. He never changes. He is not subject to change. He is not subject to any deviation or oscillation. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that is great news. The psalmist declared in Psalm 102, Of old, Lord, of old, you laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. And then through the prophet Malachi, the Lord said of himself, For I, the Lord, do not change. And James is saying, your father, the father of lights, is always who he is. He's always who he has been, and he's always who he will be, always and forever, the great I am. You see, God, the God we serve, the triune God of the Bible, is not like us. He is unlike creation. He is unlike his human creatures, even those creatures he's made in his very image and likeness. He is immutable, and that is a complex doctrine to be sure. We do have questions about it. It does stretch our finite minds to the maximum, and yet this doctrine, this truth that James is laying out for the church this morning is the strongest ground for our faith and our hope, especially in our seasons of trial and temptation. You see, his nature never changes. He is who he is. His plans never change. They are what they are. He never changes his mind. He never changes his opinion of us or of sin or of holiness. His mood and his temperament never vary. His word doesn't change. His promises never fail. And when we stack all that up together in our minds, we come away with this blessed truth. He can be trusted. He can be believed. It is to him, the unchanging one, that we lift our feeble prayers. He is the rock, the rock we cling to. He is the unshakable, immovable anchor of our souls. He's the unmovable source of all that is good and lovely and holy. He is the king. Think of this. He is the king of an unassailable kingdom that will have no end. He is the unmoving, ever-present, always faithful, ever-true counselor, lover, savior, helper, healer, rock, fortress, deliverer, mighty God. This is what James is saying. Can I get an amen? That's good news. He is always and forever the same. And how, how that helps us when temptation comes and when trial meets us. You see, for the first 16 verses of this epistle, 
James has told us the truth about the Christian life. It is not easy. And I would submit to you that the Bible nowhere, at least as far as I understand it, the Bible nowhere paints a picture of the Christian life as a life of ease. Rather, it is a life of warfare. It is a life of struggle. It is a life facing many foes, some from the inside and some on the outside and some from the devil himself. And that's the way it is until Jesus comes. This is the life we've been lived We've been called to live a life in this world, a world in its fallenness, a world full of peril, a world characterized by persistent human resistance against God's will. This is the theater of our service. It is a place always changing. Nations rise and fall. Rulers rise and fall. People change. Little, if any, can be believed. Little stability is to be found. But this is where we are to serve the Lord, in this world of constant change. But we serve the one who never changes, who never changes. Our eyes must be lifted up off the changing world, off the shifting landscape. James would say, look to the stars, the creator, the maker, the father of lights. Let your eyes be fixed on his glory and on this truth that he never changes. He is always good and perfect. He is the one who loves you. He is the one who is with you. He is the one who is in full control, and that will never change. So think about these things. When you are suffering, he never changes. When you are afraid, he never changes. When you are tempted, he never changes. When you succumb to temptation, he never changes. When everything seems to crumble around you or beneath you, he never changes. When everyone and everything fails you, he never changes. When your emotions, when your emotions run crazy, he never changes. When you feel alone and forsaken and forgotten, He never changes. When you don't know where to go or what to do next, He never changes. And when you run to Him in repentance, seeking mercy and grace, He never changes. And this is, my dear brothers and sisters, this is the only hope we have, the unchanging God who loves us, who is our Father, the great I Am. We have every reason to be the most encouraged people on this planet this morning. Despite what's going on around us, our God, our Father, never changes. Hold on to Him. And then we come to verse 18. And we see more and more of this character of God. He is good. He loves to give good gifts. And he never changes. And then James says, think about the greatest gift that God has ever bestowed upon you. That reveals his goodness. And that reveals his unchanging nature. It's as if James is anticipating a question. A question being raised. Of all the gifts that the Father might bestow to us. What is the greatest gift of all coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow? What is the grandest gift of all? What is the proof that he is good and that he never changes? Well, here's your answer, verse 18. 
of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You want proof that God is good? You want proof that God never changes? James would say, consider your own salvation. Consider your new birth in Christ. The evidence you need that he loves you and that he is good and that he showers us with blessings and that he never changes is in the mirror. Think of your own birth into the kingdom of God. Here is the special proof you need. And I would submit the sufficient proof that God is good and that he never changes. Take a moment and think back to the time when you became a Christian. What accounts for the fact that you now possess the unfading gift of salvation in Jesus Christ? How did you get into the kingdom? And if we were to pass the microphone around, we would hear testimony from you as to how the Lord saved you. And our testimonies would sound something like this. You might say, I trusted Christ as my Savior. You might say, I believed in Him. I accepted Jesus Christ. I asked Jesus into my heart. I prayed the sinner's prayer. And for me, all of those things happened one Tuesday morning in October 1964 in the pastor study of the 7th Street Baptist Church in Coleman, Alabama. I would say, I trusted Christ, I believed, I prayed the sinner's prayer, I accepted Christ. And those are common phrases we use, and, and it's kind of a Christianese, isn't it? We, we know what we mean when we describe our conversion in such terms. But James, the pastor that he is, would ask us to put aside those phrases for the moment and think of our salvation in less earthly terms. Notice what James says. How did you become a Christian? Answer, he brought us forth. He brought us forth. God did it. That's how we were saved. That's how I was saved. That's how we became followers of Jesus. Our Father, the Father of lights, brought us forth. The one who never changes brought us forth. And when James speaks of being brought forth, that is the language of regeneration. We speak of that also as being born again. And James is telling us how we were born again and who is responsible for us, how we were made alive spiritually. And you can see that the way James is describing this, the way James would ask you to think this morning, has nothing at all to do with any contribution that you or I might make. It is all of God. This proves his love. This proves his unchanging nature. It is all of grace, all of mercy, all of his power. And so... The greatest gift that he's given you is your own salvation, and that gift was granted to you totally apart from you or any other human agency that might otherwise explain it. He simply brought you forth.
He brought you forth. He birthed you. You can see what James is doing. All he is doing is thinking in his mind of what Jesus said in John 3 when he had that encounter, that famous and beloved encounter with Nicodemus. There Jesus said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Two verses later, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, that is, unless one has their sins cleansed and is brought to life by the power of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then in chapter 3, verse 7, again, two verses later, Do not marvel, Jesus says, that I say to you, you must be born again. So let me ask you now, how did you come to life in Christ? What is the proof that God loves you, that he is good, and that he never changes? Answer, God brought you to life. Your father brought you to life. He did it. He did it all alone. He did it apart from anything you might have done or could do. He gave you new life. He birthed you. Oh, you did repent. Indeed, you did receive Christ. You did ask him into your heart. You did beseech him to save you. And you perhaps, like many, prayed the sinner's prayer. Yes, indeed. But you only did those things because he first brought you to life. He gave you the gift first. Before you could believe, before you could repent, you had to be brought to life spiritually. And this is what James is saying. In love, in mercy, in sovereign power, he brought you to life. That's what Jesus taught. And your believing and your repenting were simply the fruit of the new birth. Our Father based upon the redeeming work of the Son, by the power of the Spirit, granted you new life. And you and I had as much to do with our spiritual birth as we did our natural birth. This is the point Jesus was making to Nicodemus. You can't be born again by yourself. What if I ask you this question? How did you come to be born? How were you born into this world? It would be silly... If this was your answer, I wanted to be born. And so I conceived myself in my mother's womb, and nine months later I was delivered. Or I chose the day and the hour of my delivery. Or I fathered myself. And this is the point Christ is making. No, you had nothing to do with your natural conception and birth. Your birth was a gift from someone else. And that's why Jesus used this very terminology in describing something so fundamental as our salvation. You received a gift. There is great assurance here. And maybe you've never thought of this, but some of us struggle with the assurance of our salvation. Again, that's not abnormal. That's probably standard fare for disciples of Jesus. But where is our assurance to be found? If you trusted Christ, if you repented of your sins, you only did so because you were born again. 
Do you see how that brings us great assurance? Some wonder, did I repent enough? Did I believe enough? And those are the wrong questions to ask. Why did you repent at all? Why did you trust Christ even if your faith was the amount of just a little mustard seed? Why was there faith at all? Why was there any awareness that you needed a Savior? Why repent? You only did that because you had already been born again. And the first thing you do when you're brought to life is you repent and you believe. So you should be very encouraged here. Here is your assurance. You were born from above. And had you never been born from above, you would have never repented. You would have never believed. Salvation is fully God's gift to you. Now James begins to qualify this further. You can see in verse 18, of his own will, he says, he brought us forth. The New American Standard reads this way, perhaps a little clearer. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. Your father brought you to birth spiritually because he wanted to. That's what James is saying. And he wanted to from eternity past. He had a plan from eternity past. He never changes. He never learns anything. He doesn't look into the future to see who's going to trust in him. And then he decides to bless them with salvation. No, he never changes. His plans never change. They are what they are from eternity. And so in the exercise of his will, James says, he brought you forth. This is what Paul meant in that blessed first paragraph of the Ephesian epistle. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Do you remember something Jesus said? He said twice. John 13, 18, I know whom I have chosen. Two chapters later, John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And the brother of Jesus is saying the same thing here. The apostle John, writing in his beloved gospel, says, to all who did receive him, who did believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Watch this who were born not of blood, that is human descent, nor of the will of the flesh, but born of God. Born of God. And then Peter would write in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How do you know God is good? How do you know God never changes? He chose you. He brought you to life. There is, as one man writes, a secret story behind your conversion. There's a secret story. There is a choice behind your choice. And that is the miracle of his choice of us. The wonder of that he would choose even you and me. And so James is saying that your birth into the kingdom is not your success story. It is God's success story. It is the triumph of his will, 
the triumph of his grace, the triumph of his power, and the triumph of his purpose. It is by his will. And then, it is also by his word. Verse 18, he brought us forth by his will through the word of truth. Now, this is the way the Lord brought your new birth into reality. He did it. He did it through the gospel. The phrase word of truth is, is virtually a synonym for the gospel. James is saying that your birth and my birth into the kingdom was accomplished by the power of God's Spirit working through the gospel, the word of God. Think about creation. This is what James wants us to keep seeing. Think about creation. Think about how God brought into being all that is by simply speaking his word. God spoke into the nothingness of space and creation came into existence. And then God once spoke into the darkness and the death and the coldness of your own soul and you were made alive in Christ Jesus. You were a new creature, a new creation. And in both cases, the instrument of creation was the Word of God. And that's how powerful the gospel is. That's how you got into the kingdom. Again, Peter would write in his first epistle, the first chapter, you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. And then in two verses later, he says, and this is the word which was preached to you. God brings you to new life through the preaching of the word. That's how he does it. Now you know why Paul would say what he said in Romans 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first. And then to the world, the gospel is the power of God. And when the word, when the gospel is preached, God brings life to the dead. And that's what happened to you. And that proves he's good and that he never changes. And then notice the third qualifying truth, not only a birth by his will and by his word, but there's, there's a purpose to you being born again. There was a purpose for your salvation. What is it? We find it here uh, captured in the word first fruits. There is an eternal unchanging purpose. James says, verse 18, that, here's the purpose, that we should be a kind of first fruits. First fruits among his creatures. Now to Gentile ears, that might not mean a whole lot, but to the Jewish Christians that were in the audience to whom James wrote, that would have resonated with them. There was, there was a law of the first fruits that were to be given to God. And they would have remembered that. The ancient Israelites were commanded by God to offer to him the very first and best of their produce and flocks. Those choicest portions always belong to the Lord. And in the law, they were commanded to make first fruit offerings. But those offerings indicated not only that everything belonged to the Lord, but that more blessings would follow, that God had blessed and he would bless again, that these first fruits of the flock or the trees or the fields 
would signal that God would bless with more abundance. And this is what James is saying to the people. They are scattered. Remember, he's writing to a church on the run. They are scattered, many of them by persecution. Many of them think we're the only Christians in the Roman Empire. And James says, no, no, no. You are the first fruits. You are the first fruits. There's a lot more to come. There will be a great worldwide harvest. This is what James is saying. The Lord had saved them. And there will be others, even on the run, as they carry the gospel through the Roman Empire, as they started church after church and city after city, there would be more people coming to hear the gospel, more people repenting and believing and coming into the kingdom, more fruit being generated from heaven. They were simply the first fruits, and you are here as living proof of that. That there is a little PCA church in Hampton Cove or Owens Crossroads, Alabama, is the proof that God is good and he never changes. You see, he made that promise to Abraham. Way back when, he said, Abraham, I'm going to take you from Ur of the Chaldeans and make your name great, and I'm going to give you more children than you can number. In fact, you can't even number them if you could appeal to the stars or the sands on the seashore. I'm going to save the nations through you. And this is what James is saying. God is good. He has a plan that never changes. And he is executing that plan with absolute perfection. And you are part of that first fruit harvest. You and me. And until Jesus comes, the gospel will continue to bear fruit. I read just yesterday. didn't have time to do anything but read the headline. But we're quick quickly approaching the point and think of God in his wisdom, think of God in his glory and even think of God in his sense of humor that there may be one day very soon more Christians in China than anywhere else on the globe a country dark, closed hostile to the gospel and yet the first fruits are being blessed and the church is growing even under the nose of communist, atheistic dictators. God is good, and he never changes, and his word is always true. And then James would have us think about this through this language of the first fruits. One day, our bodies will be raised from the dead. The idea of first fruits was also applied in the New Testament to the resurrection of Jesus. His resurrection from the dead, his bodily resurrection from the dead is a kind of first fruits. There will be more to come. And we see here some interesting trajectories of great truth. Not only will more Christians be reached until Jesus comes, but those who are reached and who go to their grave faithful to Jesus will one day be raised just like Christ was raised from the dead bodily. They will be resurrected to new life, a new body. And they will live forever in a new heaven and new earth. He will take everything that we've ruined by sin and make it new. And our birth into the kingdom is simply the first fruits of a greater newness that's coming. All of that is on the horizon. 
The gospel will go forward, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And God will raise his people from the dead, and God will put them in the heavenly city, and no evil will befall them. Neither will there be any tears any longer. And all of this proves God is good, and he never changes. And there is your hope for right now. There is your hope in trial and sickness, and suffering, and temptation. There is the absolute certainty that we must have that all will end well. It all depends upon our Father, our Father who never changes, our Father who can be trusted, a Father in whom we can rest knowing He is all-powerful and all-good. A Father in whom we can find our peace knowing that in a world of upheaval and change and turmoil, He never changes. Oh, the brother of James, Jesus, the same yesterday, today, forever. Trust Him. Find your hope in Him. Rest in Him. Pray the prayers of the saints. Father, give me faith to believe that I may understand. For these things are past finding out. If we wait until we understand all of God's truth to believe it, we will never believe it. But we must believe what our eyes can't see what our minds can't comprehend. May God give us faith first and then understanding. And may we know His incomprehensible peace. Would you pray with me? And